"'Twas the night of the big show, and all through the van, a dad told his kids he'd go fast as he can. The kids wanted speed, not the pace of a slacker, as they were all en route to attend the Nutcracker. Dressed in matching red sweaters and khakis with pleats, they parked and awaited their musical treat. Now seated with ease, feeling chipper and dandy, the kids began dreaming of sweet mid-show candy. But once the show started, they heard quite a clatter. Dad sprung from his seat to see what was the matter. The pit was half empty, clearly something amiss, with not enough players to make musical bliss. Violinist chairs vacant, the trumpeters long gone, and the players there produced a horrible song. The family disgusted, the crowd groaned abound, but did the instruments left create the worst possible sound? The last good night of sleep I had was on October 21st, 2014. On October 22nd, 2014, I saw Damien Chazelle's whiplash and was forever changed. How could we be all going about our daily lives, knowing that at any moment, musicians could be separated from their crew? There could be a mass daylight savings clock error. There could be a monkey on the New York City train tracks that causes all subway lines to halt. Or like we saw in Whiplash, there could be the untimely combo of a bus breaking down followed by a rental car-related crash. I am not naive enough to think I can prevent any of these highly probable events that result in the disappearance of half of an orchestra, but I can warn conductors and music directors of the worst possible scenario, giving them something to actively avoid and plan around. My name is Mike Schubert, and this is Modern Muckraker. My team and I tirelessly plunge the depths of investigative journalism by answering the hard-hitting questions no one has dared or wanted to ask. On today's episode, we will finally answer once and for all, if you lost half of an orchestra, what remaining instruments would produce the worst possible sound? Pitch reference for this episode will be Corton Pitch, or 466 Hz. Please tune your instruments accordingly. Though it never made sense to me, many people did not pay attention in music class because according to my niece, it is quote, wildly uncool, unquote, to be able to recount the origins of the symphonic orchestra. In any case, let me refresh your memory. The word orchestra comes from the Greek word, and we've consulted a pronunciation guide to ensure I say this correctly, orchestra, which is the name for the area in front of the stage where the chorus was placed in ancient Greek theater. The Greeks were shaping up to produce groups resembling more modern orchestras, but they were thwarted by the Dark Ages, more famously known as Europe's emo phase. It wasn't until the medieval times, named after the iconic restaurant chain, that orchestral-style groups began to resurge. 
However, medieval instruments were quite different from today's, including the serpent, the racket, the crumb horn, and the sackbutt. I implore you not to look this up if you are driving. Let me just assure you, the sackbutt is indeed very real. Here is what it sounds like. These medieval groups were simple, safe, and secure, like your aunt's Subaru. Members going missing wouldn't derail a performance because there weren't highly individualized parts for each instrument. But this comfortable bliss all came crashing down thanks to two renegade trailblazers, Claudio Monteverdi and Johannes Gutenberg. Johannes Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press? Yes, Johannes Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press. How did this factoid of a man we all had to learn about in fourth grade become a major player in the music world? Well, let's consider the requirements for an orchestra concert. You need musicians with instruments, a conductor, an audience comprising 50% of fancy people who want to be there and 50% of folks who were dragged there by those fancy people, and of course, sheet music. Gutenberg's printing press led to sheet music, which yielded more complex compositions, which created more specified parts for various instruments. So now you understand our burgeoning concern about semi-orchestras. Gutenberg thought he was just making the production of books simpler and more affordable by inventing the printing press. And sure, he helped increase the spread of literacy and education throughout Europe, which allowed for countless future generations to enjoy literary classics such as Macbeth, Pride and Prejudice, and Eat, Pray, Love. But just like Dwayne Wade to LeBron James, he also set up the dastardly villain Claudio Monteverdi for a treacherous alley-oop. Around the year 1600 in Italy, Monteverdi flew too close to the sun and decided to make the brash decision to give instruments different parts for his opera Orfeo, a risk never taken before. This was the beginning of the modern-day orchestra, which is organized by sections consisting of instruments within the same family. And like with any family, there's always a favorite. If you don't know who the favorite is in your family, congratulations, your siblings all secretly resent you. This individualistic dynamic played into Monteverdi's plot, as by the early 1800s, many composers began to write for specific instruments. Our team has pinpointed this moment in history as the watershed start of our doomsday calendar. Yes, this made orchestral music more complex and beautiful than anything prior, but at what cost? Monteverdi introduced a ludicrous amount of risk into the musical equation, and clearly that was by design, not coincidence. All this scheming by Gutenberg and Monteverdi has left an enormous problem at our feet. It's necessary that we here at Modern Muckraker determine the worst-case scenario for the remaining players in an orchestra if half went missing. We must consider which instruments don't mesh sonically, but we also must assess from a personality perspective which musicians are like red grapes in a smoothie. They don't blend well. Much like a 2003 Toyota Corolla whose distance to empty now reads dash 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 dash, internet research and music class memories can only take you so far. We're not out on the front lines every day performing complicated musical numbers for the elite, the elderly, and students on field trips. So we reached out to someone who is to gain their perspective into the inner workings of the orchestra. Hi, I'm David Charles Abel. I am a graduate of Yale University and the Juilliard School, and I'm currently the music director of the Philly Pops Orchestra in Philadelphia. And uh, for 24 years, I lived in London and conducted freelance with many organizations over there, including the Royal Philharmonic, London Symphony, the BBC Concert Orchestra, and orchestras on the continent and in the Far East. 
David is a man with music so deeply embedded in his bones that his name is pronounced Abel. It's a musical name. We understood that presenting our findings in this podcast would result in saying the words symphony and orchestra hundreds of times. For the benefit of clearing up any confusion around those terms, we asked David to clarify the difference between these two. You did mention a term in there, and I just want to make sure all of the listeners are fully aware because, of course, I know the difference. But it seems that sometimes symphony and orchestra become used interchangeably, but there certainly is a difference between the two. What separates a symphony from an orchestra? Gosh, no one really knows. I mean, some orchestras are called orchestra. That's also philharmonic orchestras. Some orchestras are called symphonies. You've got the Chicago Symphony, you've got the Philadelphia Orchestra, you've got the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, which I conducted in London. Who the heck knows? It's a mess. Some words have Greek roots, some have Latin roots. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I have no idea, Mike. I'm sorry to disappoint you. So with that burning question cleared up, we continued by asking David about his feelings towards the crimes of Monteverdi. Surprisingly, he seemed unfazed by them. Well, I mean, Monteverdi and most composers have the goal of making orchestras sound good. Um, now, you're interested in how would they sound bad? What would make them sound the worst? But in explaining to him the possibility of half the orchestra getting stuck on a bus at game time, or a Marvel Infinity Wars-esque snap, or God forbid, half the orchestra gets stuck behind a St. Patrick's Day parade, he quickly came around. Through my own research and inference, I came to the hypothesis that instruments with drastically different pitches would create the worst sound, largely based on the times I have tried to harmonize with my cat, who is far too bass to pair with my soprano. Do you think there are any particular pairings of instruments that if they were just left alone without the full repertoire of the orchestra, that they wouldn't match sonically? Or does everything kind of work well together? No, no, I wouldn't say that it does. You know, in orchestras, the sound is made by people either blowing through tubes, which is what the woodwinds and the brass do. The tubes could be metal, they could be wood. Hitting things, which is what the percussion section does. They can hit metal objects, wooden objects, and other things. Or scraping horsehair across catgut strings, which are attached to wooden frames. That describes the string section. So... You know, the methods of producing sounds are completely different. Don't worry, listeners. Catgut, which is one word, refers to a material used to make the strings of classical instruments. No felines are harmed in the creation of catgut. You can rest easy knowing that instead, catgut is made of the dried, twisted intestines of sheep or horses. Speaking of catgut, we also spoke with a string specialist. Although David gave us a holistic view of the orchestra, we wanted to get insight from someone like a begrudging dad on a Saturday afternoon. Someone in the weeds. Hello, my name is Bosun Mo. I'm a violinist. I am a graduate from the Cleveland Institute of Music, as well as Rice University's Shepherd School of Music. I'm currently a violinist with the Houston Symphony. As a violinist, Bosun has a specific perspective. He's the main character, the Sora from Kingdom Hearts, and even, dare I say, the Justin Timberlake of the bunch. As one of the instruments that carries the melody, Bosun has a great grasp of what he needs from his backup dancers, and he understands which pairings work and which don't. If you want to make a really lush harmony, uh, you want instruments kind of spread out between high and low registers. So, for instance, if you want a bad pairing, then you, you can put all the super high-pitched instruments together. So, 
let's say, the glockenspiel and the cretales and the piccolo and have the violin only play on the E string. That would be a pretty terrible pairing. On the other hand, you know, if you've got all the super low-pitched instruments like double bass and contrabassoon, tuba, timpani, bass clarinet all play together, you will also not get any harmony. It will just be mush, essentially. If you were to have just the extremes playing, just the highest pitch, just the lowest pitch, nothing in between, would that also be a recipe for disaster? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of music is based on this idea of counterpoint, meaning two lines of music that go together and yet maintain independent musical lines. So if you have the extremely high instruments, so for instance, let's say one piccolo, and then a really low instrument, a double bass, and have them play at their extreme registers, then it won't sound like counterpoint. It will just sound like they are both playing their own music in different countries at different times. To put Bosin's example into context, here is a piccolo and a double bass playing Scott Joplin's The Entertainer. So what we can gather from Bosin here is that if we're looking to create an unpleasant sound, we should stick to high and low pitches exclusively like a Cy Young award-winning pitcher, nothing down the middle. However, there's also percussion, the often overlooked beating heart of the group, the Chris Kirkpatrick, if you will. But percussion instruments don't always have pitch, making it harder to infer which other instruments they would clash with. To make sure this orchestral section wasn't left out like Ringo Starr in a Best Beatles listicle, we also spoke to a percussionist who was actually my professor in college for the 100-level course The Fundamentals of Music One, which qualifies me to host an hour-long podcast about the orchestra. Hi, I am Brandon Bell. I am the general manager of The Camera. The Camera is a chamber music and jazz presenter in Houston, Texas. I received my Doctor of Musical Arts degree at the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University, where I also received a master's. My bachelor's is from the Peabody Institute of the Johns Hopkins University. I'm a percussionist. I, I don't really play that much anymore because of all the, the schlepping of the gear got to me. So now I just kind of sit at the computer and deal with spreadsheets. I know what you're thinking. We've interviewed David Charles Abel, and now Brandon Bell? Who's next? Kristen Bell? Alexander Graham Bell? In fact, we reached out to both, but one was busy and the other was dead. But back to Brandon Bell. Like the favorite sunscreen brand of an Irish mother, percussion instruments cover a broad spectrum. Brandon talked to us about which instruments within the percussion section umbrella he prefers and why. I always miss notes when I play melodic percussion, like xylophone, glockenspiel, marimba. I would always try to stay away from pitched percussion <laughs> and gravitate toward unpitched percussion. You know, when I was playing a lot more, my favorite instrument was crash cymbals, just because, I mean, it's such a physical action that needs to, you know, ignite the sound. And, you know, generally they're at climactic points of the, of the music. Brandon went on to enlighten us as to how percussionists can even make music without a need for notes or instruments for that matter. I recalled a time at Rice University in which Brandon performed the piece I Used to Be a Verb, which involves striking kitchenware like Gordon Ramsay after someone overcooks a scotch egg. But rather than causing personal terror, Brandon created music. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds familiar. It was definitely um, a coffee mug and a knife. Yeah, that's by a friend of mine, Ian Power, a composer who lives in Baltimore now. 
Do you think that those instruments will ever find their way into an orchestra? Oh, they have. Yeah, I mean, people write for anything you can think of. Composers, you know, often they, they want to come to the percussion studio to see what's there. And I mean, percussionists love working with composers, but it's also kind of scary when you bring a, a composer into a percussion studio and their eyes just like light up and look at all the stuff. And they're like, oh my God, I'm going to write for this, this, and this, and this. And yeah, so it's a two-way street. <laughs> it can be dangerous. An amateur would probably assume that melodic percussion is more valuable than the non-melodic instruments. Perhaps someone whose only exposure to classical music is an annual pilgrimage to the Salzburg Music Festival. However, as appreciators of fine art, we here at Modern Muckraker know that the real backbone of the orchestra is the non-melodic percussion instruments. We're talking bass drums, snare drums, everything you would find in Drumline starring Nick Cannon. In order to follow the scientific method in our research and experimentation, we chose Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker to examine, and because the podcast industry has decided that three-hour episodes are too long, we will specifically hone in on The Waltz of the Flowers. Our experts made it clear that iconic pieces like The Nutcracker are so ubiquitous that any deviation from a pitch-perfect performance would be very apparent. Here's Brandon again, explaining how percussionists approach this classic. You know, Tchaikovsky, he has a very distinct sound. Um, his orchestration is very uniquely his. Boson Moe also gave us an insight as to the violin's perspective on this work. The overture is probably one of the more difficult pieces written for violin, and that is because Tchaikovsky has got all the violins playing in one of our highest registers in very, very small steps. So even if one violinist in the section plays even slightly out of tune, it sounds horrible. This is famously Newton's fourth law. The more violins there are, the easier it is to mask the mistakes of the others. Should the violin section be reduced to, say, half its size, this would go against the physical laws of good classical music, especially in a string-heavy piece like Waltz of the Flowers. As someone with experience playing both a brass instrument and a stringed instrument before becoming a conductor, David Charles Abel was able to give insight into how these types of instruments mix. For instance, the first two instruments that I ever played as a child were first the trumpet. Now, every kid likes the trumpet and every little boy wants to make a lot of noise with this loud sort of fanfare-ish instrument. So the trumpet was a great thing to start on. What happened at my school was that the orchestra needed violas more than trumpets, so they switched me to the viola. Now, they couldn't be any more different. The viola is a stringed instrument with the horsehair and catgut I described before, and it's pretty large, so for a kid to hold onto it is difficult. And they don't go together well, the trumpet and the viola. The trumpet makes a loud, brassy sound, and the viola is sort of mournful. And the viola, it's, it's like a large violin for people who don't know. It's useful for being the filling in the sandwich, the harmonic sandwich, as it were. So that would be a particularly bad pairing. To put David's example into context, here is a trumpet and a viola playing Scott Joplin's The Entertainer. And David's examples of poor pairings didn't stop there. Let's see, I think maybe the glockenspiel and the tuba would sound really bad together. Again, here's the glockenspiel and the tuba playing the entertainer. So, 
So it would be safe to assume in that case that things on the opposite end of the pitch spectrum, a piccolo and a double bass, for example, that might not work as well together, the highs and the lows? Not always, because sometimes that's a really interesting sound. There's a piece by Percy Granger called A Lincolnshire Posy, which uses the piccolo and the bass clarinet about four octaves apart, playing the same tune. And once you hear that sound, you will never forget it. It's fantastic. We asked David if he could do his best impression, and here's what he came up with. Um, no. David isn't the only expert on whom the piccolo left a lasting impression. Brandon Bell, my old college professor, had a very different take years ago. You were my teacher for Musi 117, which I believe was the introduction to the fundamentals of music. And what stood out to me from this class, and frankly from any class I took in college, is the moment when you were teaching us about all of the instruments, specifically you got to the woodwinds, and even more specifically you got to the piccolo, and you said, quote, the piccolo is shrill and annoying and it shouldn't exist. Is this a belief you still hold to this day? See, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm spitzing over here. You're about to hear Brandon get very flustered, almost as though he's scared of what the piccolos might do to him. I, you know, I feel bad that this, of the four years at Rice, this is one of the things that you remember. I'm, I'm embarrassed, frankly. Yeah, it, it, it could be a difficult instrument. You know, if you're in the orchestra, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very loud and it's an intense instrument. I mean, some of my really good friends are flute players who also play piccolo. Um, you know, hopefully they don't listen to this, um, but it, it, it's an intense instrument. And, you know, I feel like if you're not prepared for it, um, it, you, it just it can put you in a bad place. <laughs> Could we possibly add Piccolo Rebellion to the list of ways orchestra members may disappear? Maybe if he had heard the piccolo with the bass clarinet, he would have felt differently. But frankly, his reaction to the piccolo used to be far more intense. But you know that age-old adage? Some people are like reverse jalapenos. They get less spicy with age. Now I know what you're all thinking. Symphonies are like real-life sitcoms, where everyone is best friends, and somehow manages to be in each other's wedding parties, and some end up in the will-they-won't-they they romances, and they will. They always do. Because wouldn't you just be devastated if they didn't? But that's not always the case. Here's Brandon on personalities within the orchestra. The sections of the orchestra, they kind of have their own personalities. It's not that they don't get along with others, but percussionists are always the crazy people in the back of the orchestra. You know, I feel like wind players are always very kind of meticulous and kind of anal at what they do, especially double reed instruments. You know, they're making their own reeds like all the time. If they're not rehearsing, if they're not practicing, they're at a table shaving cane and making their own reeds. Trumpet players are generally arrogant, kind of like a, you know, a percussionist uh, in that everything you play is a solo. You know, you're not like a backstand violinist where you're working with 20 of your colleagues playing the exact same thing. You know, like winds and brass and percussion, you know, every, every note you play generally is going to be a soloistic note. So I feel like you have to you have to have that kind of, not arrogance, but um, yeah, I, I can't, I'm blanking on the word. <laughs> Bravado, perhaps? Though Brandon couldn't find the right word here, he did manage to find the time to dunk on the viola, much like the rest of the music world often does. You've probably heard this from other people that you've interviewed, like violas are always the butt of every joke. So 
there's that. <laughs> the poor old viola. Of course, the overlooked, velvety tone of the middle child of the orchestra clashes with the brash arrogance of the trumpet. From our experts, we've learned that not only will some strings and the trumpets sound bad together, but they'll also be annoyed with each other and not mix well, probably making them play worse. A classic case of oil, water, and maybe even a touch of antifreeze. In order to maximize the horrendousness of the orchestral sound, the viola needs to go, leaving the violins to fend for themselves and brave the trumpet's overwhelming tones alone. Perhaps without the viola, the violins will now realize that Janet Jackson and Counting Crows were right. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. If you have ever helped plan a wedding in any capacity, you will be no stranger to the fact that seating arrangements can cause serious drama. And those same chair-based headaches can be produced in the orchestral world as well. Here's David Abel again. Anyone sitting in front of a trumpet is going to hate the trumpet players because... They lose their hearing. You know, it's difficult. Sometimes the violas sit there. I have sat there. It's not nice. Uh, you know, there have been legal actions. There have been lawsuits, all sorts of things. Anyone sitting behind the French horns isn't going to be happy because the French horns face backwards. So if you're sitting behind them, you get blasted. And the French horns have a bell. The bell of the instrument, the flaring part faces backwards in the French horns, and they play with their right hand stuck into the bell. So if you can imagine the saliva, the viruses, the bacteria that accumulates when the breath goes through that tube, that long tube which curls around and comes out the bell onto their right hand. So if you ever go up to a French horn player who's just been playing and want to shake their hand, think twice. You may have noticed David mentioning the word lawsuit and trying to secretly sprinkle it in without drawing attention, like Remy fixing up a soup in the Pixar classic Ratatouille. But we simply would not pass up the opportunity to learn more about this particular scenario. Oh, well, that has to do with the maximum number of decibels that are allowed in, say, an orchestra pit in an opera house. You know, some operas can't even be performed anymore because the level gets too high for too long. So people are in danger of losing their hearing. Now, this is getting very serious. But I want to tell you about another pair of musicians who didn't get along. This is a historical fact. In the Chicago Symphony, several decades ago, now the Chicago Symphony is one of the greatest orchestras in the world. The principal flute player, Donald Peck, and the principal oboe player, Ray Still, didn't speak for decades. Now, can you imagine? They sat next to each other. They made beautiful music together. They had to play in harmony. And they had to collaborate musically, but they hated each other. The reason was that Jean Martinon, the music director at the time, was trying to have Ray still fired. Ray was the principal oboe player. Ray was a union man. Martinon did not like that. And Donald Peck supported Martinon, didn't like Ray still, thought he was trouble and wanted him fired too. And they had to sit together for years until apparently Georg Schulte, who came in as music director later on, made them kiss and make up, as it were. We can infer from this story that even with conflict, the flutes and oboes will sound beautiful together. In order to bring down the orchestra, neither one can be there to help keep it afloat. They're like the symphonic Tom and Jerry. Even if they hate each other, boy oh boy do they make great entertainment. We have to address the elephant in the room. The orchestral feud to end all feuds. Violins versus literally everyone else in the orchestra. 
In order to get insights straight from the source, we asked Bosun Mo how he feels about other people in the orchestra saying violins are overhyped. As a violinist yourself, do you think that this is just the classic they hate us because they ain't us situation that is happening? <laughs> so yes and yes, absolutely. So yes, in the sense that, yeah, we are absolutely overhyped. And I think most violinists, myself included, certainly have too healthy of an ego sometimes, may or may not be fueled by too unhealthy of insecurities. So that's yes, that's the first yes. And secondly, yeah, they hate us because they hate us. That's also for sure. We have such great repertoire, such great music written for us. I mean, we think about violin concertos or violin sonatas, and there are just so many countless pieces of music that we get to play. And, you know, you'll look at repertoire from, you know, our, our close cousin, the violists, and usually for auditions, they have a choice of, you know, one concerto. Maybe two, if they're feeling generous. To clarify what Bosun means when he says violins have the best repertoire, we asked Bosun to put the violin's role in the orchestra into terms anyone born between 1985 and 2005 could understand. My team and I are focused on trying to make sure that we're breaking down any sort of barriers of entry to people understanding and appreciating classical music. We're trying to put things in terms that everyone, such as my niece, could understand. So to relate the orchestra and specifically the violin to boy bands, would you say that the violin is the Justin Timberlake of the orchestra, the most prominent, the prettiest, the one that everybody most idolizes? Yes. <laughs> okay well maybe it depends on what pieces we're playing but generally yes however however just so that i don't seem like a complete narcissistic asshole sometimes the trumpet player principal trumpet could get that title i think violinists generally are fairly competitive people just by nature of how many we are and also how many auditions and competitions we've had to do growing up and also how many auditions and competitions we've had to do to get our jobs. So I think violinists have this kind of unspoken feeling of like, okay, I really have to work well with other violinists because in an orchestra there are so many of us. And then in chamber music, usually there's more than one violinist. There's often two violinists, if not four violinists. So we have to understand how to work really well with each other. However, I feel like at the bottom of it all, violinists are also still quite competitive. We always want to be the best one there. We always want to be the most prepared. And the ones who are healthy usually think to themselves, okay, I, you know, I just want to, I want to rise to my level of expectations. And the ones who are not so healthy, you know, think about, oh, I just want to play better than that person who sits right next to me every day. Bosun brings up an interesting point. Originally, we only considered entire sections of the orchestra disappearing. It would only make sense for them all to travel together, but if there's beef within the section, that may not be the case. In fact, not only is it possible, but it's probable that half the violin section could disappear and could quite honestly make the section sound worse if we're only left with half the healthy violinists who just want to rise to their own level of expectations. Without the violinists with the insecurity-driven ambition to be the best, who would be able to take those reins? We asked Bosun about the effects of losing half the violin section specifically. 
you will lose the kind of lush string sound that is so you know emblematic of that orchestral sound. However, um, if you look at pieces that were written you know not so recently, let's say in the 18th century and earlier, actually they weren't scored for so many violinists. So oftentimes you would play pieces from that era so as to recreate that kind of sound, and it's a clearer, more crystalline sound rather than a lush. A warm sound that many strings on stage will have. So this is one of those ironic moments where, even though it is not terribly loud and very very high, you want as many violinists playing it as possible to make up for you know anybody's margin of error. If you've got three violinists playing, then the errors will just be so obvious. Here we see the crack in the foundation of the orchestra. For years now, orchestras have been padding themselves with more and more violins to cover up any possible mistakes, creating something of a bubble. Should any of that padding be taken away, the cracks in the system will be visible, like your roommate's mug you broke, super glued back together, and prayed they wouldn't notice. Our experts have spoken as to what instruments they think would make for bad pairings, whether it be sonically or personally. But creating the worst half orchestra is more than just putting together awful groups. It's also about breaking up dynamic duos. Just ask Simon and Garfunkel, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, and Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lo Actually, never mind. We wanted to see what removal of instruments would make the remaining players anxious, like a grown adult at a party without a phone to pretend to text on. Here's Boson. For me, that would be the cellists. Oh, okay. Why the cellists? The cello is a very versatile instrument. It can be 100% a melodic instrument, which is what the violin mostly is. But it can also be um, a provider of what we call basso continuo, meaning giving you the bass line, giving you the harmonic progression. So cellists oftentimes play both roles. So cellists are extremely fun to play along with because uh, when you have this high soaring melody, they can either have an equally beautiful counter melody to your melody, or they can be providing you with the harmonic bedrock upon which your melody can truly soar. Do you hear that sound? That's the sound of violists everywhere groaning at a violinist praising cellos, not violas, for their ability to be melodic and supportive. In other words, the viola is to the violin as Samwise Gamgee is to Frodo Baggins unappreciated for their contributions until they are gone. In order not to perpetuate that cycle, we gave our expert David, a former viola player, a platform to speak his truth. It is terribly unfair, I agree. The violins sit at the front. There are more of them. Usually, you know, in a symphony orchestra, 14 first violins and 12 second violins. That's 26 people playing the violin right in the front. The violas are usually stuck in the back. They can be right in front of the percussion or the brass, and so they get blasted in their ears. And they don't get the good tunes very often. You know, the violins get the tunes and the violas have to accompany. So, yeah, it's not a, it's not a great life for violas in a way. David's lamenting about the underappreciated violas brings to mind another underrated gem of the music world we can all understand. Brian Luttrell of the Backstreet Boys. Brian was clearly the most talented Backstreet Boy, but unjustly lived in the shadow of Nick Carter simply because Nick was cuter. We asked David if he agreed with the sentiment that the viola is the Brian Luttrell of classical music. Here's what he had to say. Uh, is, is this K-pop or something? I, I don't 
Clearly, David is so in tune with the Zoomers that he feels BTS has squashed any debate as to who the best boy band of all time truly is. However, after further explaining Brian's situation to David, he was able to relate. Well, for me, I mean, Backstreet Boys, that's two Bs. We have three Bs, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Viola's not a star. Viola's never going to be a star. Viola's the mayonnaise in the sandwich. Well, that's rude. Viola can sometimes play a tune. And it's a beautiful sound. It's sort of mournful. So if that boy band member is sort of the emo, depressed guy, then yeah, he's a viola. He is a bit on the moodier side, so I think that works. The final question is about the trumpet player. We've identified this as Joe Jonas from the Jonas Brothers. Very pretty, very out there, very loud, and taking center stage often. Does that sound accurate for the description of a trumpet? It does. I don't know Joe Jonas, but I worked with Nick, his brother. Nick was Marius in the Les Miserables 25th anniversary concert in London that I conducted. And, uh, you know, maybe people have seen that on TV. Whenever PBS wants to raise money, they'll put that on. And if you watch it, you'll see the back of my head an awful lot because I'm trying to keep the orchestra with all those people on stage. If you had to describe... Nick Jonas as an instrument in the orchestra, which would you pick? For example, we thought he might be the French horn. Sure, yes, yes, the French horn. I mean, he sounds nice. I think a French horn sounds a little nicer, but um, yeah, okay. Maybe a bassoon. So the instruments have beef, but what about the leader, the conductor? Naturally, to address this, we spoke to our conductor expert, David. My final question that I have is around your particular role. And I think as a conductor, nothing sums up what you bring to the table more than something that you do have on your website written by The Independent that says, Conductor David Charles Abel nailed every hotspot with keenness and self-evident love, steering the tightened narrative with a great sense of its imperative while relishing through his instinctive feeling for tempo rubato, the score's aching lyricism. It seems like your role is incredibly important managing all of the people within the orchestra. If we are considering the conductor one of the people that might get lost, do you believe that the conductor would be the worst person to leave behind? Sometimes the conductor would be the best person to leave behind. I know some conductors who fall in that category, actually, and musicians would agree with me. They would agree with me, oh, this conductor just gets in the way, you know, just leave us alone. We know what we're doing. That happens. That happens. I would like to think that I myself am not in that category. And the incredible erudite quote from The Independent, I think, would support that. I mean, if I may say so without sounding arrogant. Of course, conductors are supposed to be arrogant. So, which is another reason that you might want to leave them behind on the bus. It, It sort of depends on the music. I mean, some music, you just, you need a conductor. Other music, you really don't. Is there anything that informs whether you do or you don't? Complexity. Yeah. Like, uh, do you know Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring? That's complex. It's violent. It's fantastic. It's so cool. You wouldn't want to do that without a conductor because the time signature is changing all the time. It goes from two beats in the bar to three. It goes from quarter notes to eighth notes. And you need someone keeping time visually. You know that the gestures that conductors make actually have something to do with the music. So they're actually, it's a language of gestures which tells the musicians where the beat is and how fast we are, how slow we are. And if you're a really good conductor, you can even tell them how loud or soft they should be. But um, 
you wouldn't want to do the Rite of Spring without a conductor. A Haydn symphony you might be able to do because the tempo stays the same all the time and the musicians just listen to each other. The most important thing is for the musicians to listen to each other and figure out where they uh, fit together and how they fit together. Going along with our suggestion of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, is that a piece that you feel a conductor is necessary for? Or is that one of the ones where if they were left behind, it wouldn't be as big of a deal? Hmm. You know, musicians play the Nutcracker so often they could probably do it in their sleep. So they could maybe do that without a conductor. It might not be as good. If you had a good conductor, it's going to be, you know, a lot better. If you have a not so good conductor, well, they can do a lot of damage. From David's comments, we determined that removing the conductor is not a necessary element of producing the worst possible half-orchestra. Given the extremes of conductor types that David presented, for our study, we will operate under the assumption that we have a perfectly mediocre conductor doing their best to corral a significantly reduced group of musicians. The already wild gesticulations certainly would be amplified under this additional stress, making our conductor look like your mother struggling to survive in Wii Tennis. So here's where the rubber meets the road. It's time to do our civic duty and create the worst-case scenario for losing half of an orchestra so that no music director is ever faced with this situation. To review, our song for this presentation is The Waltz of the Flowers from Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. A standard arrangement of this piece consists of the following sections. Flute, piccolo, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, French horn, trumpet, trombone, bass trombone, tuba, timpani, triangle, harp, first violin, second violin, viola, cello, and bass. Let's first address the string section. We are cutting the total violins in half by removing the second violins to expose any missteps by the first violin players. To further leave them on their island of hubris, we are removing their safety nets of cellos, violas, and bass as well. We've also decided to remove the harps, due to the instrument's consideration as a member of both the string and percussion families. Thus, removing the harps will hinder twice as many sections. Moving on to the horn section, we are keeping the trumpets, since they are some of the more frustrating instruments to play alongside. We are removing French horns 1 and 2, firstly to cut the French horns in half, but also because the part played by the first and second French horns pairs well with the trumpets. Just as we did with the violins, we want to ensure the trumpets are isolated so that they truly miss their supporting instruments. We are also keeping the tuba and the bass trombones while removing the traditional trombone so that our horn section is more composed of the extreme ends of the pitch spectrum with less middle tone instruments. Now let's make like Keith Moon at the end of a show and tackle the percussion. The only non-melodic percussion instrument in our arrangement is the triangle, which obviously we must keep. The only other percussion instruments are the timpani, which we are leaving in due to Brandon Bell's assessment that they inherently have more room for error. Lastly, we are removing all woodwind instruments aside from the bassoon and the piccolo. The preservation of our quest for only extreme pitches led us to keep the piccolo. That, and also to be true to Brandon's original claim of them not deserving to exist. Finally, we are keeping the bassoon because, well, it's the bassoon. The only other adjustment we will make is reducing the number of players in some sections to arrive at our half-orchestra number. Like Boson mentioned earlier, this will further expose any imperfections in the performance. And now, Modern Muckraker proudly presents the answer to, if you lost half of an orchestra, what remaining instruments would produce the worst possible sound? 
Our sound designer and editor, Brandon Grugel, put together this composition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers, which alternates between a full orchestra version and a half orchestra version to showcase how much gets left behind. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Muckraker. Modern Muckraker was created and is hosted by Mike Schubert. This episode was written and researched by Ananya Hegde and Mike Schubert. Our editor and sound designer is Brandon Grugel, and our senior project manager is Frida Lucas. Our theme is by Evan Cunningham, scoring by Brandon Grugel, and our art is by Jessica E. Boyd. Modern Muckraker is produced by Mike Schubert and Multitude. Thanks to our experts, David Charles Abel, Bosun Moe, and Brandon Bell. You can learn more about these experts, as well as many items we discussed, on this episode's page on our website, modernmuck.com. You can find us on social media, at modernmuck, on Twitter and Instagram, as well as reddit.com slash r slash modernmuckraker. This podcast was made possible thanks to our Kickstarter backers, and we'd like to give special thanks to the following supporters. Ellie, Zoe Kopp, H. Gemmel, Sydney Aquino, Vicky Garcia, The Menace Sisters, Polly Burridge, Hannah Langswert, Matt Barger, Kelsey Gillespie, Juliana Varner, Jack Schubert, Joel Schubert, Barbara Schubert, and Selena Ellerman. This episode was the season one finale of Modern Muckraker. We thank you for listening to this first season. We hope to be back in the future with more episodes, and we hope you've enjoyed the truth. <laughs>